This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. The information presented on Money Talks is meant to provide general information about the topics discussed and is not necessarily the opinion of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. The information presented does not create any type of relationship between the hosts and guests and the listening audience. Please consult a financial advisor or any other qualified professional for guidance about your personal finance questions. Join us each week for Everyday Tech on MPB Think Radio. We have an IT expert, a computer repair ace, and we troubleshoot your problems on the phones as well. Everyday Tech, Wednesdays at 10 on MPB Think Radio. Download the podcast now or listen on YouTube on the MPB Think Radio channel. From MPB Think Radio, this is Money Talks. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, president of New Perspectives, and Ryder Taft, portfolio manager at New Perspectives. They're both chartered financial analysts, and Ryder holds the Certificate in Investment Performance Measurement from the CFA Institute. Tax evasion is the failure to pay or deliberate underpayment of taxes. Tax avoidance is an action taken to lessen tax liability and maximize after-tax income. We'll be discussing ways to avoid taxes legally and give some tax-efficient investing tips. And our experts are always ready for your other personal finance questions. You can contact us by email. The address is money at mpbonline.org. So good morning, Nancy. We're halfway through the month of August. What financial news do you have for us today? Good morning, Kevin. Well, we've been talking about inflation for so long and those rising prices that everyone was seeing. And then we started talking about disinflation, the slowing down of inflation. And now we're seeing some evidence in some areas of deflation, of declining prices um, among certain types of things. And you heard at the top of the hour the talk about the decline in housing, the decline in housing starts and in permits. We're also hearing that buyer traffic is down considerably, looking for new houses. A lot of contracts on houses have fallen through recently. And we're starting to see price cuts on houses. Now, that doesn't mean that they're going back to the prices they were pre-pandemic. But it looks like a lot of things are just coming back to earth a bit. Uh, Is it unusual for that uh, inflation to deflation occur so quickly? No, but then we've had a very unusual situation where uh, we had a pandemic and a lot of people were moving around and uh, now just settling back in. So it's a little bit uh, like that rubber band that was stretched and it is now coming back to static. Good morning, Ryder. What's on your mind, financially speaking, this morning? Good morning. Um, Just to follow up on the vocabulary lesson that Nancy provided us, I think it's a a good illustration of when sometimes we talk about inflation, we exclude things like food and gasoline because you've seen gasoline prices change day to day. You could even drive by a gas station on your way to work and it's one price and it drive back home and it's a different price. So when the price changes so much, it's going up, it's inflation. And then do we really want to start talking about it deflating the next day when it just goes down by five or 10 cents? So that's one reason the volatility there that we exclude that from inflation uh, sometimes when we talk about core inflation. And I think that was just a kind of a good illustration. But on the topic of inflation, 
Walmart, one of our nation's largest retailers, uh, kind of a, a bellwether for how consumers are doing, where everyone's looking for those everyday low prices. Um, they have they the story of in the past couple months has been they were had too much inventory on hand and so they have started discounts on things like uh, apparel and goods that are not food so food is still food is still high food is still tight for a lot of folks but for the things that are a little less necessary that Walmart had maybe over ordered or shipments came in because they weren't being closed weren't being made for for a little while and those things they've started uh, driving sales through discounts so it's good for the consumer uh, you're paying less for your gas you're paying less for your clothes you can afford a little bit more in the food budget which is very necessary but it's not necessarily a good sign if if it means that folks just aren't demanding goods anymore and I think that story kind of ties into the whole arc of the inflation story we've had so during the pandemic supply was tight because Factories were shut down. Nobody was producing things. If you remember, nobody could get toilet paper for a couple of weeks. And then with stimulus money and folks getting back to work meant that everyone had money and was buying everything. And and we missed out on, a, on you know, six months or a year of buying things and traveling and things like that. And so that was a huge imbalance of things not being produced, but people demanding so many goods. Uh, now things are being produced and everything's kind of in flux and, and the whole situation is is weird, like Nancy pointed out, uh, but it, it, they, these prices may be stabilizing, coming back to a more natural level. But our durable goods are coming down in price, and so that's something we're watching closely. Does that mean we're coming back to earth, or does that mean we're heading into recession? We don't know yet, and a durable good is a good that you don't buy all the time, like an appliance mm-hmm. or furniture or a car. Um, so those prices are declining. We're waiting to see what happens. Certainly, everybody is noticing the relief at the pump. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we were over five dollars an average gallon in June. We're down to below four. That certainly gives us all some relief. But just a reminder, like houses, that's not putting us back to where we were pre-pandemic. It's just coming down to earth. This is Money Talks, and today we're going to learn about how to avoid taxes legally on investments. Uh, Let's start by learning how investments are taxed. Uh, Nancy, we'll start with you, please, with an explanation of capital gains. Well, let me just back up and say, um, in our tax code, we tax investment income different from earned income, typically. And that was a decision that was made some time back as a way to encourage investment. And there's been a lot of conversation about whether we should continue doing so. So um, your capital gain, and a capital gain is when you sell something for more than what you paid for it, and that has to happen in a taxable account in order for there to be a declared capital gain that you're going to have to pay capital gains tax on. But capital gains tax rates are always going to be less than your earned income tax rates. For a couple, you can earn up to 80000 and pay nothing on a capital gain. That same couple can only pay 15% on the capital gains rate, up to half a million dollars in earned income. And certainly half a million in earned income is going to put you at a pretty high income tax bracket. That, that covers a lot of folks. Yes, it does. 
And so that's a huge break for people. Now, the capital gain has to be a long-term capital gain, meaning you had to have held that asset, that investment, for more than a year, a year and a day, and it qualifies. Less than that, and you're going to pay the the income tax rate, and that's a huge difference, and we monitor that very closely. One exception to this is your primary residence. So you can sell a primary residence and have a pretty big capital gain, and it is exempt from those capital gains taxes. For an individual, you can have a $250,000 capital gain, not sales price, but gain, and for a couple, a $500,000 capital gain. So that's where a lot of people will put their money into their primary house, and they have an advantage there. Uh, So Ryder, is there another way that investments are taxed besides these capital gains? Yes. So, and we talk about this all the time, the way you make money by buying stocks, you can have a gain and the the capital gain, a gain on your financial instruments like Nancy Illustrated, or it can pay dividends or interest just depending on what type of investment. Is it a stock? Is it a bond? And so some dividends, so interest, just like interest in your bank account, interest on a bond, that counts as income. That's just that's how it is. But dividends paid by a company, that is a share of their earnings that they actually send out as a check to you, that is taxed at a favored rate, just like the capital gains rate. So there's a difference between qualified and, and, and regular dividends. And so if the dividend, it looks like interest, uh, and so that's typically uh, financial companies, uh, especially real estate investment companies, it lo- that looks like income uh, anyway. Uh, that is not taxed as that. That's not the favored rate. But the favored rate for most companies is that zero percent. If you're under about eighty thousand, or that fifteen percent up to a half a million income above that, it's twenty. And there's a surtax on there. But but for most folks, that is going to be a, the dividend income is going to be a much lower rate than their uh, regular earned income. And I think that's the reason a lot of folks, they, they, they want to look at dividend-paying companies. They, they have this idea of they're going to build up a portfolio of companies that just pay dividends and they can live off of that because it, you would need less dividend income than earned income because you would be taxed less on it. So uh, that's the 1099 DIV. Is that the form you would fill out uh, when you do your taxes? You would you would receive a 1099 DIV if you have a if you're getting this from a brokerage account. You would likely receive uh, a ten a consolidated 1099 because there are a bunch of different 1099s out there. One for interest income, one for dividends, one that has a different level of detail, one for capital gains. So a brokerage account might have uh, a larger one that consolidates all of that together. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, President of New Perspectives and Ryder Taft, Portfolio Manager at New Perspectives. Today we're talking about legal ways to avoid paying income taxes on investments. The Senate passed Inflation Reduction Act of 2022 allocates approximately $124 billion for IRS tax enforcement. So, Nancy, what's uh, one strategy to avoid paying taxes on capital gains or at least putting off those taxes? Well, the main thing you can do is... um put those gains in retirement accounts. So for any retirement account, you're not going to get one of those 1099s to report any dividends or capital gains. Um, And that's the advantage. You can let that just roll and go. 
And we've heard some conversation, again, back to this notion of uh, the way we tax earned income versus investment income, some of the proposals to say let's push investment income to the same levels as earned income. And people have said, well, you're going to hurt people's retirement account. That is not true because retirement accounts don't face that tax. So that's the main thing that you can do. The other thing is to practice buy and hold. And we certainly encourage that on a regular basis anyway, and to not be a short-term trader, to be an owner in a company in which you invest. And so that means that's going to take you beyond that year, and you will get that advantage of lower rates. This is Money Talks on MPB Think Radio. We have a caller on the line, so we're going to invite Robbie, who calls in from Peru, on the show. Good morning, Robbie. What do you have for us? Good morning. This coming November, I will have lived in Cusco, Peru, for two years. I have, I'm not drawing my Social Security yet. I'm waiting until 66 and a half. And in Peru, you have to have a guaranteed income of $1,000 or more or working. So I had taken a job as a consultant for a guy that owns restaurants. Through my bank here, I received a W-9 form, and none of the categories fit my description. I'm an employee. The options I have are individual proprietor or single-member LLC, C-corporation, S-corporation, partnership, trust estate, limited liability company or other and the instructions under other none of the categories fit me so i don't know how to fill out this form i have to have it back to the bank by the end of the month robbie you mentioned that you're a consultant right with a bank yes yes okay no 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 with no, with a man that owns restaurants, I'm helping him translate the menu. He wants to make his restaurants as American as possible for tourists. Okay, so um, uh, if you're a consultant, the question is when you get paid by that uh, restaurant owner, do they take taxes out? Do they take out Social Security and Medicare? Well, they take out Peruvian taxes I pay into a health insurance plan and a retirement plan here in Peru. Yeah, um, it sounds like you're still going to be probably considered self-employed. What do you think, Ryder? Okay, so just for a little bit of clarification, you received a W-9 from the bank, not from your employer. Is that correct? That is correct. Through the um, F-A-T-C-A. Yes. So the bank would send you a W-9 because they want to do just a little bit of identity verification. That's where that's the form commonly used by financial institutions just so that they have you signing your name, that this is your name and this is your Social Security number. They need to run an identity check. They need to double check it with the IRS or whatnot. I'm not exactly sure everything they're doing with that, but they generally use that uh, in opening accounts and just doing regular maintenance of accounts. That's what that's for. The first box in section three should say individual or sole proprietor or single member LLC. You are an individual. You would check that box. Oh, okay. Okay. Because my thinking was that we're going to take this form and send it to the IRS. 
Do you think they do that? I, I'm again. I'm not sure exactly what they do with that. I see it very commonly when there's an issue with, and this could just be because you're living overseas. They want to have an extra layer of uh, paperwork on you, extra layer of documentation. We see it most often when there's an issue with somebody's name and social security number. Either they had a typo or a mistake in their social security number or their name, or they have a very similar name to somebody else, uh, possibly they are a junior or the second or, or third or something like that. So that's where we most often see it, but it's it's not an unusual form uh, to get someone to uh, verify their identity just a little bit more. So it, it, that question is asking essentially the social security number that you plug in there, is that does that belong to an individual? And yes, you are an individual. So that's that's what that's for. Okay, because I have had the account for about a year, and mm-hmm. I have been a legal resident mm-hmm. of Peru with a carnet for about 15 months. Yeah, and I mean, you can ask the bank, obviously, what they're doing with it, and, and if it's not something you're comfortable filling out, you could, they may have alternate ways of doing this, but it's I view it in the same category of them wanting to get a copy of your government ID, a copy of your Social Security card on file so that they can show they've gone through that level of due diligence. You know, you're a U.S. taxpayer. They've done what they need to do to make sure that, that they've verified who you are and that they are following the law there. That's that's all that this form is. Okay, okay. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. Uh, Robbie, before we let you go, just curious, uh, how did you find our show sure. in Peru? Oh, I've listened to you for years when I lived in Memphis before I moved. Okay. Well, thanks for following us down to South America. We really appreciate uh, you calling in, and, and thanks for being a listener. I hope we have a growing growing followers in, in Peru. That's that's nice. <laughs> Thanks for calling, Robbie. Bye-bye. This is Money Talks, and we're learning legal ways to put off or avoid paying taxes on investments. Nancy and Ryder can also take your personal finance questions. You can send an email to money at mpbonline.org. Ryder, do you have another investment opportunity that has tax implications? When you when you pitch it that way, Kevin, it sounds like I'm sounds like I'm trying to sell something. Um, so tax implications, we touched on these just a second ago of retirement accounts. So just just a normal investment account with no special tax benefits or rules, you do get the uh, you do get the favored tax rate on your gains, on your dividends, on most some of your gains, some of your dividends. With a retirement account, which people are probably maybe more familiar with if they have a 401k through work, if they have a Roth IRA, an IRA, these are accounts where there's some tax rule or benefit for putting money in and taking money out, but the money grows in the account tax-free. The most common ones, IRAs and 401ks. You With a 401k or a deferred or traditional IRA, you get a tax benefit for putting money in that money is taken out of your income for tax purposes. With a 401k, this is going to be one of the easiest and largest breaks for most people. You can put up to $20,500 into a 401k in a year. That comes off of your payroll. That is something your employer has to offer it, and they will have they will have the mechanism for doing that off of your payroll. And that's going to be the easiest way to get a big tax break. If you think about if you're in, say, a 22% tax bracket, you put in uh, $20,000, uh, you're saving, what, forty. 
42, uh, $44, $4,500 um, a year on your taxes, and that's just the federal. And understand that those contributions to your 401k, even though they're not subject to income tax, they are subject to the FICA, Social Security mm-hmm. and Medicare. So that's applied to that. And uh, while Ryder mentioned the 20500 he certainly is not over 50 yet. And if you're over 50, you get an extra amount. So you can contribute up to 27000 a year. That's yeah. huge. Yes, yes. So there is the catch-up contribution that does add a significant amount. If you don't have a 401k at work, you can also open up a personal IRA. You can put up to 6000 Or how much is it for people over 50, Nancy? 7000 if you're 50 or older. So you can get that as a deduction, or you can put in a Roth IRA, uh, which is the, – there's, there's different reasons why you put it in, in each one. You can put in a Roth IRA. You don't get the tax benefit on the front end. Same dollar amount contributions you can make, but you never pay taxes on it again, even when you withdraw it. One thing to keep in mind with these retirement accounts is that you do pay income tax when you withdraw them. And that's one of the things Nancy alluded to before is that investors in just a regular taxable account, they they get no tax benefit for putting money in, but you do have the lower rate through the life of the account. The account will generate taxable dividends and gains throughout its life, but those are at a lower rate. And so these are all tax implications that you have to weigh when you're saying, okay, does it make the most sense to put money in my 401k? Does it make the most sense to put it in a taxable account? These are all things that you just have to weigh given your income situation, your future income situation, how much you have to invest, all sorts of factors. Well, ultimately, when you're talking about investing and producing a return, it's a return net of all those taxes. And so we're always Mm -hmm. conscious about tax strategies. And um, I always say, render under Caesar what is Caesar's. But by golly, we're going to take advantage of everything on the books. We're talking today about ways to limit or avoid the amount of income tax you pay from investments. The IRS's website, it's irs.gov, has a get answers to your tax questions area where you can find authoritative tax information. We've got a caller on the line, so we're going to say good morning to John from South Haven. John, you're on the air with us. Go ahead. Uh, Good morning. Thanks for taking my call. I have a question about the way the state of Mississippi treats capital gains taxes short-term and long-term, and that's my question. I believe the state just treats it as regular income. I would have to double-check... on the tax instructions there, but I don't think we have a preferred rate. Of course, our top income rate is only 5%, so it's it's a lot less impactful on your total tax situation uh, than, than you would see on the federal level. Okay, I agree. Uh, a couple of years ago, I sold some stock and had to actually pay taxes for the first time in three years since I'm retired. Mm, okay. Yes. Yeah, I just and wanted that's, to make sure I had uh-huh. not made a mistake. Correct, correct. And and John, he raises a very important point about the state of Mississippi. A, a lot of retired folks' income, that's withdrawals from IRAs or 401ks, that's pension income, Social Security income, is not taxable on the state level. A lot of that's still taxable federally, but the state of Mississippi does give a little tax benefit to retirees on things like that. And I would also point out uh, one of the things that you need to be mindful of on the federal level now that we have larger 
standard deductions. A lot of people don't track a lot of things anymore because it's they don't maybe they don't have enough donations. But you still need to do that for the state level because you mm-hmm. may be getting some breaks there. Uh, good information. Thank you. Appreciate your help. Thanks, John, for the call. This is Money Talks on MPB Think Radio. Uh, Nancy, get on the tractor because we're about to do some tax loss harvesting. All right. Yeah. Nice. Well, it's something we do every fall anyway. <laughs> you know, it's just that, that time of year. And uh, certainly this year, now that we have experienced the big decline the first part of the year, and we've had some bounce back, you may have some losses in your portfolio. And again, it has to be in taxable accounts, not in retirement accounts. But what you do is you look for anything that you have a loss on that, you know, maybe you wanted to get rid of anyway, or maybe it is a mutual fund or an exchange traded fund that you could just swap to something a little different, Um, you can sell that and have a loss, and that loss will first go against other gains that you have, but it can also go against income up to $3,000 a year. So that's a huge advantage, and any losses can carry over from one year to the next. So if you have some extra ones, they can go into next year. Now, here's the caution. If you declare the loss, you cannot buy back that investment, that security, for uh, 30 days. And if you do, they will disallow the loss on your taxes. So be careful and monitor your calendars. Um, but again, you know, we, we don't usually like to do trading, buying, and selling based strictly on taxes. But if we have some advantages and we want to go ahead and declare the loss and we're going to do something different anyway, uh, we may take the tax loss. This is Money Talks. There's four and a half months left in 2022 for you to implement investment strategies to possibly lower your tax bill. You can send an email to money at mpbonline.org. We'll continue on in just a minute, but we've got another call to get to, this time from Kosciuszko. We say good morning to Bubba. Bubba, you're on the air with us. Go ahead. Good morning. Thank you for letting me call. I'm on my walk, but I listen to y'all. So, uh, But I, wanted, I just want to tell you something. I'm going to stop here so I won't be out of breath, but I, I am a, a lawyer, not a certified tax lawyer, but I practice a little bit of tax law. I'm retired now, but my main gig now is I'm a tree farmer, and what I do when I have a tree uh, a sale of timber, and I, I noticed the last gentleman who called uh, had fake capital gains taxes or, or taxes in Mississippi on his timber sale. Here's what I do. If you sell a track of timber, in today's world, you're going to be talking about $100,000, $200,000 or more. It's not going to be 20000 bucks. Now, what I do, I make a gift to other members of my family, and I reduce, if I've got anybody in my family that's not paying, uh, that has a little bit of, of, of uh, income left in the zero bracket, I use that, but the main thing I do, I will donate my money. I will don- I will make a timber deed to my charities, whether it's a church or a foundation or whatever. I'll make a timber deed, and, and the amount is unlimited. Mm-hmm. So if I'm going to give, say, just say 20000 bucks to a church, what I'll do, I'll donate a fifth interest in that timber sale mm-hmm. to the church, and they make the sale. And I don't have to pay taxes uh, 
on that income. I'm get and I I can if I itemize, I can still deduct it. So it's really a, like a double whammy. But in today's world, most people don't itemize. But I don't have to pay taxes on it. I've done this for years. Mm-hmm. And I, you can't do it with a dividend, but you can do it with timber. What are your thoughts yes. on that? <laughs> That's well, great. You can, you can also do it with any other uh, investment. So we recommend people, if they want to make a donation and uh, they're doing it out of a taxable account, then to give away appreciated assets. So that's exactly what you did. And so instead of selling them and declaring the capital gain, paying the tax, and then giving the cash, you give away the value of that, and you Mm -hmm. get the credit for the full value, but you don't pay the tax on the capital gain. It's perfect. Yeah, and and I just want to highlight another slightly clever thing that's happening here that makes it slightly more clever than just doing stock. So, Bubba, I'm guessing this is the the timber income would be would come to you as income, as taxed as income, not not as a capital gain over and be above any kind of expenses related to the harvest. Is that right? Yes. No, it's a capital gain because see, most oh, okay. At, at my age, most of what somebody cuts now is going to be. Uh, they they will have planted it thirty years ago or something okay. like that. So most of what you get is one hundred percent, or if not one hundred, it's going to be uh, very high. It's going to be mostly okay, mostly capital gain. Then okay, yeah. then then that's then you're doing a very very similar thing to donating stock. Uh, which would be a way you could give away uh, give away a dividend. You'd have to give away all the stock too, but that's the point, isn't it? Let me tell you this: the, the beauty of this deal. And I talked to uh, my tax guy a long time. I've been doing this for years. And uh, it, it's perfectly, I mean, it is a wonderful way to do things. And uh, my tax preparer said, you know, I think everybody in Congress must have a doggone tree farmer too. Because this is a real, I mean, this is a deal, right? Here. And I've spoken on this subject to uh, tree farm groups. And sometimes I get the answer, well, now, wait a minute, you're going to get put in jail if you do that. No, it's perfectly legal. Now, I have had the luxury. I can type the deeds. I don't have to pay mm-hmm. a lot to do my typing for me. But uh, it's just a great thing. Bubba, thanks uh, for the call. We appreciate that interesting strategy that uh, I think our experts uh, give you the double thumbs up on that. So we appreciate your call. Uh, before our next break, Ryder, if you would talk about mutual fund exchanges as part of a tax avoidance strategy. Uh, so... There's there's some stuff here. Uh, one thing to keep in mind about mutual funds, regular uh, open-end mutual funds that you buy directly from the mutual fund company is that they do distribute out any gains in income because it is someone else managing that money. They are buying and selling stocks. They do incur gains and losses and dividends and interest, and they have to pay that out to you at the end of the year. You still pay the tax on it. They distribute that, both the money and the tax to uh, liability to you. What you can do, a mutual fund exchange is typically done in between share classes of a mutual fund, so you can move, you do a tax-free exchange to move to a lower-cost share class. That's not necessarily a tax avoidance strategy because you're not moving to a different fund. You're not moving. You're not changing your allocation. You're not selling that fund. You're still in the same fund. Uh, What you can do, what makes a little more sense from a tax strategy is using exchange-traded funds. 
Exchange-traded funds, they do not distribute the tax liability to the owners. Uh, they're traded daily on the exchange. There's arguments for and against, you know, if they should be, if they're better or, or worse than mutual funds, we really like them for the tax benefit because we can and we can have a lot more control over the amounts we buy with them, and we just have a lot more control over the buying and selling of them. They don't distribute the gains; they do distribute. They'll pay out, of course, dividends and interest. The dividends at a preferred rate, of course, but you control when you realize the gains from there because you can say, "I'm gonna." I don't want to realize gains this year. I want to realize them next year. I, or I just don't want to realize them at all. I'm going to keep this for a long, long time. So an exchange trade fund gives you a lot more control over your tax situation. This is Money Talks. You can email money at mpbonline.org. Here's a program reminder. Tuesdays at 10 a.m., listen live to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. That's immediately following our show. The IRS encourages taxpayers to create an ID.me account from irs.org so they have access to their tax information. It's a multi-step process that uses facial recognition and authentication to prove that you are who you are. We're talking way today, we're talking today about ways to avoid or delay paying income taxes on investments. We have a couple of emails to get to. This first one says, "What's the difference in the taxation dividends from REITs?" Ryder said it was different. So Ryder, follow up on that if you would. Yes. Yeah, so again, qualified dividends are just profits from a company. They've actually already been taxed on those profits. They distribute that. It is taxed at a favored rate. It is taxed at your capital gains rate. That was the 0% if you're under 80000 as a couple uh, and 15% if you're under 50000 uh, Sorry, 500000 as a couple is what Nancy outlined. If it is a REIT, so a REIT is a real estate investment trust. This is a type of corporation. There's a couple of different names for them tax-wise, but they distribute almost all of their income. They are required to distribute at least 90% of their income. In practice, they distribute actually 100% or more of their income, and they do so to avoid taxation at the federal up. to avoid taxation at the corporate level. So that allows the individual who may have some special tax status of their own, including being you know, a foreign investor or having it in an IRA, something like that, that is taxed at their income level. It comes to them as income. Whatever their income is, that's how it is taxed. So that's what we mean when we say REITs are taxed differently from qualified dividends. All right, here's another one. Uh, So, Nancy, maybe take a stab at this. Is interest on most municipal bonds taxable at the federal level and the state level? Well, that depends on uh, who issued the municipal bond. So if you live in the state of Mississippi and you buy a municipal bond, then you're not going to pay federal income tax on that municipal bond, and you're not going to pay state income tax. But if you live in Mississippi and you buy a North Carolina bond, you still have a break on the federal side, but you're going to pay state income tax. And so that's just the difference in, mm-hmm. you know, getting the full benefit for only those bonds where you are residing. Um, again, my caution with municipal bonds is I have seen municipal bonds in retirement accounts, and it just blows my mind. You mm-hmm. would never put municipal bonds within mm. retirement accounts, any kind of tax-deferred or tax-free account. They would never be there. The other caution is that I see a lot of people buy municipal bonds just to avoid tax, mm-hmm. and you really need to look at, well, what is my tax rate? Because municipal bonds – 
um, get the tax break, but they pay a lower rate than corporate bonds. So if you're in a low-income tax bracket, you're, it's better off for you to buy the corporate bond and pay the tax than to avoid the tax with a municipal bond. You only want to do the munis if you're in very high-income tax brackets. So you have to do the math to figure out what's appropriate for you. Uh, why do you recommend not having municipal bonds in a retirement account? Because you don't pay tax on retirement income. And so why would you settle for a bond that's going to pay you less than another bond when you don't have to pay the tax? It doesn't make sense. Not only that, imagine you put a municipal bond in an IRA and it pays you interest and then you withdraw that interest. You will pay tax on that withdrawal. You've effectively turned that from a tax-free bond into a oh, totally yeah. taxable bond. Yeah. So you, you accepted a lower rate because – it was tax-free, and then you paid taxes on that lower rate. That's just – that's crazy. It's crazy. This is Money Talks on MPB Think Radio. Another caller on the line, this time from Gulfport. It's Anna. Uh, good morning. Go ahead, please. Hi. Good morning. Um, my question involves a uh, vacation home. We have – we don't think we're going to sell it, but just in case we do, um, over the years, should I com- – could I should I uh, keep all the receipts of everything we do, like every blind yes. I buy? Every yes. Okay. Now the other and, thing is, do you do you rent out that home at all, or is it strictly for no. personal use? Mm. Okay. Yeah. If it's strictly for personal use, it's a little bit cleaner, but um, you are going to have a capital gain if you're lucky. Um, and uh, so yes, any improvements that you have done to that home. Keep track of that, and that will then increase what we call the cost basis, what you paid for it, what you added to it, which would then decrease your capital gain and decrease your capital gains tax. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Ann, for your call. This is Money Talks on MPB Think Radio. About uh, five minutes or so left before we're out of time. So, uh, Nancy, if you would talk about the importance of matching investments with the right investment account type. Oh, boy, this is really writer's bailiwick here. (laughs) He loves to talk about uh, not only do we diversify because of different types of securities, but you should also be diversified as far as your tax accounts. And um, so, you know, again, if if you're going to have bonds – Use corporate bonds, tuck them into those retirement accounts, into those IRAs. Um, make use of taxable accounts for the lower capital gains rate. So if you have um, high growth investments, you can tuck those into taxable accounts, and it makes sense to do that. And my final caution here is with annuities. So annuities are tax-deferred vehicles. But uh, most people, you really don't need to use them. They're designed for people who are in high income tax brackets. And one of the big problems that we run into with annuities is when they are inherited, then um, the people who inherit them are going to have to take that money out and they're going to pay tax at their income tax rate on a capital gain. And that's really painful. Yeah, so that's something we talk about asset allocation all the time. What is an appropriate allocation? How many how much stocks do you need? How much bonds? How much do you need in cash? And that's just going to depend on your risk tolerance and when you need the money. If you need the money tomorrow, you got to have it in cash. If you don't need it for 50 years, put it in stocks, please. Uh, but we talk about asset location as to what 
what do you want the tax status of that investment being? And so like we illustrated before, if you have municipal bonds, and municipal bonds are just for whatever reason an important part of your your portfolio, then you want that in a taxable account because they're not going to get taxed. You don't want that in an IRA. That would be the wrong place to put it. And this also touches on one of the kind of weirder things to think about. Yes, sometimes you intentionally purchase things which you expect a lower return out of because just the nature of all the investments, their characteristics and what you need. So sometimes you have cash or short-term bonds because you have very short-term needs. Well, those make more sense to have. If those are in your portfolio, it makes more sense to have those in an IRA, which is taxable, so that you have something in there. You don't expect it to grow a whole lot, so it's not going to be an increasing tax liability for you. Whereas Nancy mentioned high-growth stocks or even volatile stocks, you would want those in a taxable account because because as those grow, you pay – and then when you sell them, you pay less in tax on the growth of those because you can have a long-term capital gain there. Also, the volatility, you have some benefit like we were talking about this year when stocks were at their lowest was a good time for folks to – and it still is a good time to realize some taxable losses if you have them. And that can only be done within a taxable account. That can't be done within a retirement account because, again, everything that happens, good or bad, pluses or minuses for taxes, it's just it doesn't factor in 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 a retirement account. So that's why you want to make sure that you're putting your assets in the right place, not just that you've picked out the right assets. All right, let's wrap things up with one final phone call. Off to Gulfport we go. Cindy's on the line. Good morning, Cindy. Good morning. My question involves an IRA conversion. When I do a conversion, it's telling me to follow the federal uh, tax rules on a conversion for the state, yet the state doesn't charge you for, um, well, how do I say it? There's no taxes if you just receive the proceeds out of your IRA. Do I have that right? The conversion, converting an IRA, a traditional IRA to a Roth IRA does incur federal taxes, but it does not incur Mississippi taxes, again, because Mississippi does not tax the withdrawal, uh, withdrawal of money from an IRA. So when I do that conversion, I'm not going to have to pay the state taxes on that. Correct. Yeah, oh, that's, a, okay. that's a big, big plus, mm-hmm. but you do need to prepare for federal income mm-hmm. taxes, and that's the bigger piece. Okay, because the instructions in the booklet that gets sent out says to follow the federal rules. So I've always been confused about that. What What's the the booklet? The booklet that's the um, instructions for how to fill out the form. When you come to the doing a conversion, it tells you to follow the federal rules. Hmm. Do you think this is this is a form or booklet from her institution, Ryer? I'm not. I'm not sure. Hmm. Cindy, we're going to have to leave it right there. If you could, if you wanted to follow up, if you would send an email to money at mpbonline.org. We'll make sure that uh, Nancy and Ryder get in and they can uh, dig in a little deeper to make sure that we get you a complete answer. We appreciate you calling in, though. That'll wrap us up for today. Money Talks is a production of MPB Think Radio, funded in part by generous financial support from listeners. To hear today's show or a previous show, visit moneytalks.mpbonline.org. Or listen to the podcast by searching for Money Talks on your podcasting app. Our show is produced by Liz Gill, and our call screener today was Charles Arnold. 
For Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson and Ryder Tapp, I'm Kevin Farrell, inviting you to join us every Tuesday at 9 for Money Talks, only on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.